Welcome to the Newport Church Sermon of the Week podcast. Newport Church is a non-denominational, spirit-filled church, part of the Dove International Apostolic Network of Churches and Ministries. We are located between Mannheim and Lidditz in northern Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. We look forward to seeing you. And now, here is today's message. Um, So, if you know me at all, um, you may know that I am a little bit of a Bible nerd. Um, I get really excited about learning new things in Scripture, and usually, uh, like, Dave will come home from work, and I'll be like, oh my gosh, guess what? I learned this new thing today, and I just, like, have to tell him I'm so excited about it. And I had one of those moments um, a few weeks ago that I want to share with you, something that I learned for the very first time about Scripture, about the creation story specifically, that maybe I'm going to share it with you and you guys are going to be like, yeah, Megan, it's like been there in Scripture the whole time. Like, we already knew that. <laughs> but I learned it for the first time and I was so excited, so I hope that you guys get excited about it too. Um, so I have been listening through the Bema Discipleship podcast, and if you have no idea what that is or have never heard of it, I recommend you check it out, B-E-M-A discipleship podcast, Um, and it's just this, like, messianic Jew rabbi, so he's a Christian, but he's a Jewish rabbi, Um, and he just, like, walks you through scripture and dives deep into it, and it's really great, Um, and he was taking us through the story of creation, and he pointed out that Adam names his wife twice. He names her once before the fall, and then he names her something different after the fall, And it, like, blew my mind. Like, it's been there in Scripture the whole time, but I didn't notice it. So we're going to look at both of these instances and see the difference. So the first one is from Genesis 2, uh, 21 through 23. So it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now when we hear that in English, uh, it kind of sounds like, sure, you get woman from man, because they're kind of just the same word with like a prefix, right? So yeah, okay, she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. So take her out of man and then add add two more letters. But in the Hebrew, the word is isha, and it actually means the part of me that's missing. So we see Adam saying, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called the part of me that's missing. It's so poetic, it's beautiful. The part of me that's missing. So right here, the one who is giving her identity is basing her identity on who she is. She is the part of me that's missing. But then, they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. Everything kind of falls apart. God gives them the curse or the punishment or the prophecy that uh, he gives them. And seconds before he kicks them out of the garden, Adam names her something else. So in Genesis 3, we see 
Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So this word, this name is Hava in Hebrew. And it means the source of life or the mother of all the living things, or like mother of all. Um, and so this time, after the fall, Adam names her based on what she can produce. Pre-fall, her identity was found in who she was. And post-fall, her identity was found in what she can produce. And I think what blew my mind about this is the reminder that God sees us as who we are, particularly who we are in relation to the one who gave us our identity, who we are in relation to him. We are sons and daughters of the king. As Todd and Hannah shared earlier today, earlier this morning, we are completely forgiven. We are washed clean. We are holy and sanctified in his presence. That is who we are, and that is how God sees us. But we usually see ourselves based on what we can produce. Maybe it's something physical we're producing, like a table. I don't know. I've never made a table, but people here make tables, some of you. (laughs) But maybe it's the home we make for our family. Maybe it's the words we're able to speak, the kind of employee I am, the kind of friend that I can be, the kind of sinner I am or maybe even the kind of saint I am. Our identity, so often we take on the identity of what we can produce, what we can do, what we're capable of. And as I was thinking about this idea of living with zeal, for months now, um, I have known that I was going to be preaching on as part of this series, Living with Zeal. And so I've been meditating on the word zeal and thinking about, like, who comes to mind when I think of someone who is zealous for the Lord? And a few uh, people who are actually in my life came to mind, but really the people that that, um, I just kept coming back to were Peter and Paul from Scripture. And what I love about both of their stories is that there is a pinpointed uh, section of their life where you can see a before and after. Before they were zealously living for the Lord and after they were zealously living for Christ. For Peter, it was the resurrection, right? Jesus resurrected from the dead. He uh, proved to Peter who he was, that he really was the Messiah. He gave him the keys to the kingdom and said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. And Peter's life changed, right? He went from being someone before the resurrection who was always trying to prove himself. I'll be the one that steps out of the boat. No, Jesus, they won't be able to kill you because I won't let them. No, Jesus, I'll follow you even unto death. I can do it. 
constantly trying to prove himself. Then after the resurrection, all he was trying to prove was Jesus. He was just pointing to who Jesus was, away from himself and to Jesus. And then you have Paul. Paul's story of conversion is a little more dramatic, as we know. He was a Pharisee, meaning a leader in the temple, who um, his main job was to persecute Christians. And I think the thing about Paul's story before he was converted is that he loved Yahweh. He did. And he specifically loved Yahweh's law. And he was zealously trying to keep the law. He was doing everything he could to say, look at how good I am. Look at how much I am like what the Lord wants me to look like. And he took it to an extreme, probably. But can't a lot of us relate to that? Look at what, how good of a Christian I am. Look at how much I give. Look at how much time I spend in service. Look at how active I am in my church. Look at me. But after Paul's conversion, he wasn't pointing to himself anymore. He was pointing to Jesus. And this makes me think of Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. He says, He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Meaning I will come and um, like remove you from the kingdom of heaven, basically is what he's saying. This church in Ephesus... Um, was known for, they, like, they were doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing. He says, like, I've seen your hard work, I've seen your good works, I've seen your perseverance and your endurance, and you're doing all those things, and that's fantastic, but you aren't doing it for the right reason. You've lost your love for me. Now you're just doing it to say that you can do it. In the book Mission Drift by Peter Greer and Chris Horse, the authors write, by believing Jesus is the Savior, we're released from the bondage of sin. We are given an eternal hope. We become heirs with Christ and we are declared without blemish and are given a foundation for selfless service to those in need. With such good news, why aren't we passionately sharing this message while we serve? When Christians forget that all we do flows out of our response to the undeserved grace we've experienced. We lack motivation and endurance. 
All that we do should flow from our response to the undeserved grace. This morning, I am not going to share with you anything that you haven't heard already. I'm not going to give you a three-step process on how to stay zealous or um, line, lay out exactly the way to keep the zeal in your life, to keep you focused on Jesus. I'm not going to do that. Instead, this morning, I want to remind you of all the truth you have already heard. Hannah shared it. Todd shared it. The worship team shared it. We're going to hear scripture share it. You are a son and a daughter of the king. You have been forgiven, not in part, but the whole. You are free, free, forever you're free. And I think that our zeal comes from remembering that. It comes from keeping our eyes on Jesus. And I think that really, in, in times in my life, when I've lost that zeal, when I've lost that passion, you know, I still love the Lord, I still have the Holy Spirit, but he's not my driving force. He's not the fire in my veins, as we sung earlier. When I think about those moments in my life, it's almost always because I've taken my eyes off of Jesus and let them slowly drift to myself. Steve Haas, the vice president of World Vision, um, is quoted as saying, getting eaten by a whale or nibbled to death by minnows results in the same thing. But one is typically easier or harder to diagnose. I think that when we lose our zeal, it's something that happens slowly. And often we don't even necessarily notice that it's happening. And so this series of living with zeal has been to help us put guardrails on that. To keep us from getting nibbled to death by minnows. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Luke um, that compares two different people and where their gaze was, where their eyes were fixed. Um, and before we dive into this passage, um, this is a story about a woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and anoints them with oil or uh, perfume. And there's a story like this in all four of the Gospels. But, um, and actually, Pastor Matt just preached on one of them uh, a few weeks ago, about a month and a half ago. Um, he preached on the life of Mary of Bethany, and he referenced one of these passages. It was a really great sermon. I really appreciated it. Um, and he talked about, like, Mary's passionate pursuit and her ability to rest in the Lord. Um, and that is the passage. That's the story 
that is found in Matthew, Mark, and John. But the version in Luke is actually about a different woman at a different time. So Jesus had his feet washed with someone's tears and wiped by their hair and anointed with oil twice in his life. (laughs) Which is weird when you think about it, but that's fine. (laughs) So this is going to be, we're going to be studying the other passage, looking at the other woman. And we know it's a different woman based on like a lot of key context clues and like the whole, the whole circumstance, the setting is very different. So we know that this is a different point in time. Um, So we are going to read that passage starting in verse 36, and we're going to go all the way through it, and then I'm going to back up and kind of explain what's happening. So, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Yes, tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled both debts. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put perfume on my head but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We're going to look at this story from two different perspectives. We're going to start with Simon and then look at it from the woman's perspective and kind of tell the the same story twice from two points of view. So let's start with Simon. Simon is a Pharisee, which means he is a teacher or a leader in the temple. Now, there are a lot of Simons in the New Testament. This is not one of the ones you know. He's just a random guy with a really popular name. <laughs> and as a Pharisee, um, at this point in Jesus' life, the Pharisees don't like Jesus, but they don't quite hate him yet. They're not, they're not at the point where they want to kill him. They just are very weary, like wary of him. 
And um, so Simon invited, invites Jesus to his house. He finds out he's in town and says, Rabbi, come over to my house and we'll give you an opportunity to teach while you're at my house, which was like a very common invitation when a rabbi was in town. And he probably does so for one of two reasons. Either first, he is genuinely curious about Jesus. I've heard you say a lot of things. I've heard a lot of people talk about you and I wanna know, are you who you say you are? Are you who other people say you are? Or the second reason is that he really thinks that Jesus is not that person. And he wants to kind of trip Jesus up. Come to my house. Yeah, go ahead and teach. I know the law really well, so I'll be able to prove you wrong when you're doing it. And honestly, based on kind of what happens in the rest of the passage, I think it was a little bit of both. I think there was a part of him that wanted to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And then the rest of him wanted to prove Jesus wrong. And so he invites Jesus to his house. And um, what would have happened, what was like pretty normal, um, was that he would invite Jesus for dinner along with a handful of invited guests. And they would take dinner in the courtyard of his house because he was probably pretty wealthy and had a courtyard. So they would take dinner in the courtyard, um, seated on the ground, you know, on a blanket with lots of pillows. And then after dinner, so that, that was just for like the invited guests, but then after dinner, his teaching time would be opened to the public. And anyone that was in town that wanted to come hear Jesus teach could come to Simon's house. And um, Jesus and the dinner party would be seated on the ground still. And then all the public that wanted to join would be standing around the outside of the courtyard, able to hear, maybe able to see, depending on who's standing in front of them and how short they were. But um, <laughs> mostly just there to listen, right? And... The thing about Simon, as Jesus is teaching, he's not really paying attention. Because while the woman is doing all of these things, Jesus is still teaching. He's still going on and talking. But Simon, instead of listening to what Jesus is saying, is looking around the circle at everyone else. And he's looking around, and maybe he, he catches something, and he, do I know her? She looks really familiar. Wait, is that? No, that can't be that woman from town. Is that, is that her? Oh, I can't believe she's here. Why would she come to this? Wait, what's she doing now? Is she kissing his feet? Oh, does he know the kind of filthy, repulsive woman that is touching him right now? Does he know what kind of filth is getting on him? Oh my goodness, it's just, it's disgusting to watch, to think about those germs where that woman has been that are touching his feet. Why is he not stopping this? That's so gross. And then Jesus, like a teacher who catches you not paying attention in class and asks you a question. 
calls him out. That happened to me a lot as a kid. I was very chatty in class. <laughs> Megan, can you answer this question? Uh, yeah, is it six? No. Is it Jamestown? No. Anyway, so Jesus asks him this question. And he tells this story about um, two people who are in debt and a banker who is very gracious and forgives both debts. And the one person owes 500 denarii. Now, a single denarius would have been considered about um, an average person's day's wage. So think like one day of like a lower middle class person, one day's wage. So 500 denarii would be about a year and a half of wage. So if we kind of extrapolate that out, um, currently the average income in the United States is roughly $60,000. So um, a year and a half of wages would be roughly $90,000. So that's what this first person was forgiven of, $90,000. And the second person was about 10% of that, so $9,000. And so Jesus asked Simon which person loved him more. And Simon's like, well, probably the one that got the bigger debt forgiven. <laughs> that makes sense. But what Jesus wanted Simon to see is that neither one could pay. 90,000 is absolutely more than 9,000, right? There is no question that $90,000 is a ton of money when you don't have it. But the truth is that $9,000 is also a ton of money when you don't have it. It might as well be $9 million when you don't have it and don't have a way to get it. And both debts were forgiven. Both debts were canceled. And I think so often it's so easy for us to look at other people's life and think, well, my life doesn't look like that. And you very well may be right. But even if it's only $9,000, you still can't pay it. And if we think about this woman, this woman who lived a sinful life, that's how Luke puts it, which we don't really know for sure what that means, but based on kind of the vague way that he stated it, scholars are pretty sure he's talking about prostitution. If this woman is a prostitute, that's how she puts food on the table. So if she recognizes this is a sinful life that I need to stop, but that's how she puts food on the table. And now she's in this cycle that she can't break on her own. That even if she wanted to, she can't get out of. 
And that's what our sin is so often like. We need someone outside of us to help us break that cycle because we just aren't capable of it. And so Jesus is saying whether it's $90,000 or $9,000, you still need me to help you break that cycle. And that's what I want to do. So as we're talking about this woman, let's look at things from her perspective now. So this woman is a prostitute, or likely a prostitute. But by the time she comes to Simon's house, she has already been changed by Jesus. We know that because she comes with an alabaster jar of perfume in order to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. Like, she already is coming to worship Jesus. She's already been changed by him. Maybe she was in town one day and she saw a crowd gathering and just went over to kind of see what was happening and she heard Jesus preach and she was changed by that message. Or maybe, as Jesus so often did, she was just standing on the street and Jesus walked past her and stopped to talk to her. We don't really know how, but we know that she was changed by this encounter with Jesus. And she comes to Simon's house very out of place. But she really wants to hear him speak. And she really wants to do this act of worship for him. And so, like I said, Jesus would have been on the ground, um, teaching kind of from a, a seated position. And it says he was reclined at the table. So maybe I'm envisioning him like, you know, like laying on his elbow, like doing one of these. And so he's like stretched out in front of her. And she's standing at his feet, scripture says. And so she's there, and she's hearing him teach, and she's hearing him talk about the kingdom of God and, and just... Um, yeah, just talk about all who are welcome and all who, all, all, anyone who wants to come, the kingdom of God is open, and all of the other things that he was preaching right around this time. And then suddenly she notices that her cheeks are wet. And she looks down and she sees that her tears have gotten onto his feet. But my filth, my stench can't touch his feet. My dirt can't get on him. What He can't tolerate my germs. And so she takes off her head wrap, and she starts wiping his feet with, his, with her hair, trying to remove that stench, trying to remove her filth, her shame, her sin from his feet because his perfect and holy feet are too valuable to have her filth on them. But his perfect and holy feet are so close that she just can't help but kiss them. And she realizes she's getting even more of herself on him. So she pulls out the bottle of perfume that she brought with him, and maybe this will take away my stench. Maybe this will take away my shame. 
And then Simon calls her out. And I want you to think about how small she must have felt in that moment. She already was somewhere where she shouldn't have been. No one wanted her there. People were uncomfortable that she was there at all. And Simon called her out. And Jesus, there we go, okay. Um, And Jesus calls her out as well, but in a very different way. Imagine how she felt when Jesus told her that her sins were forgiven. Imagine how she felt when Jesus praised her in comparison to Simon. Simon, you couldn't even do this, but she passed this bar. Imagine the weight that she felt lifted. Pastor Mike McKinley, when thinking about this passage, said, when we're weak and we fall into sin, does it drive us to Jesus for mercy or merely into a resolution to try harder and do better next time? The example of the sinful woman encourages us to be aware of our own sin, not in order to celebrate it, but in order to celebrate how great the grace and forgiveness of God really are. There have been a lot of points in my life where, you know, I've heard these testimonies of people who have been saved from addiction, saved from um, a life of crime or, um, you know, found Jesus in prison, like these people who have these crazy testimonies and praise God for those testimonies. Praise God for the ways that he works in the lives of broken people. But so often, it's easy for us to think that's not my testimony, so... When I think about my life, I, was, I gave my life to Jesus at the age of eight. I don't swear, I don't drink, I saved myself for marriage. Like All of these checklists of things that we consider a good Christian, I've done them all. And so it would be really easy for me to say, I don't really need forgiven as much as that. But the reality is when I think about that, I think about how much more grace that I need. Those people had an excuse they didn't know. I have known since the age of eight what was right and what was wrong, and still I don't love people the way that they should. I have known my whole life how I'm supposed to value people, how I'm supposed to see people, how I'm supposed to love people, and I still don't do that. I have known how I'm supposed to put the Lord first. 
And still, so often, he is not number one in my priorities. But our sin, no matter what it looks like, is serious. They are all debts that we can't pay back. John Stott in The Cross of Christ says, Our sin must be extremely horrible. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately what sent Jesus there was our own greed, our envy, our cowardice, and our other sins, and Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment and so put them away. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There, these noxious weeds shrivel and die. When we take our eyes off the cross and we put them on ourselves, whether it is to admonish or like acknowledge the things that we have done and the things that we can produce and look, how, look who I am and look what I know, and God, I can handle this without you. I'll get you next time. Or if we have our eyes on ourselves because we are like bathing in our shame and bathing in our sinfulness and dwelling in our brokenness, either way, our eyes are in the wrong place. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. That is what protects our zeal. It is slowly drifting our eyes to ourself that steals the zeal away from us, that steals that passionate pursuit from, from us. Harvard University in 1636 was founded on the, with a mission statement, everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That was their purpose. They set out, their founder set out to create a place where everyone could learn exactly what their main, their main drive was. The main end of life is what they said. The main purpose of life is knowing Jesus Christ. And they wanted to create an institution to educate people that would... Um, that would know that passionately and be able to teach others that. It was, a, it was a training school for ministers. And as we know, Harvard today is a really great school and doing incredible things, but it's not that, right? It's a really fantastic educational institution, but they're not educating ministers or any of their students, that the main goal in life is to know Jesus Christ. Because they slowly drifted away from their mission. They slowly drifted away from keeping their eyes on the cross. And it was only about 80 years after Harvard was founded that a group of pastors in the area said, like, this is not okay. We need a school that's actually doing what they set out to do. We need to make a school that really does this, that really um, teaches, teaches pastors how to be people that evangelize and that, that share with the world who Jesus is. 
And so they found a wealthy donor to be able to back that mission. And his name was Elihu Yale. And Yale was founded with the exact same principles in mind. We are going to teach people exactly who Jesus is, and we are going to make sure that that's the thing that's their priority, that that's the thing they have their eyes fixed on. Well, we know how that went, too. (laughs) It is that we get slowly nibbled to death by minnows, and we take our eyes off the cross. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as I finish. Um, This series of Living with Zeal has been about setting up guardrails to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. David talked about um, setting up those guardrails by determining what season you're in and how you want to approach that season before you even get there by being intentional about how you approach different seasons in your life. Pastor Matt shared about um, setting up guardrails for your family, keeping your family fixed on the one thing that matters. Shane talked about guarding against comparison and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus instead of on ourselves or the people around us. Larry talked about how the Holy Spirit is the ultimate guardrail and the one that keeps us in line with who he is and that we need to not just be baptized in the Holy Spirit once but continuously refilled with him because he is the one that's going to keep us fixated on Jesus. Brian and Janet talked about stepping out in faith, taking a step towards Jesus in in that pursuit and being bold and saying, I'm going after the one thing that matters. When we live with zeal, it is because we are passionately pursuing the one thing. But in order to do that, we have to keep our eyes fixed on that one thing. And we have to remember who we are in light of him. You are not what you produce. You are not a product of your actions. You are not a product of your words. You are not a product of your thoughts. You are a son and a daughter of the king. You are one who has been declared free. And there is nothing that you can do that will take that away. And there is nothing that you can do that will earn that back either. Don't lose sight of your first love. And definitely don't forget who it is that loves you. As we move into um, a time of worship and reflection, if you are at a place where you need to be reminded you need to shift your gaze back to Jesus. I just ask that you would take this time to do that. We're going to have prayer ministers up front here um, who would be who would love to pray for you and help you fix your eyes on Jesus, help you remember who you are and what your identity is and where your identity comes from. Or if you don't want to come, if you don't feel comfortable coming up here and praying with them, 
Grab someone around you. They would also love to pray with you. And if you are someone who has never fixed their eyes on Jesus, who has never really understood where your identity comes from, who has never borne the label of redeemed and free because you don't really understand what that means or you've never understood what that meant. Now's your chance. He's waiting. He's calling out to you. He's reaching out his nail-scarred hand and saying, follow me, pursue me, fix your eyes on me, and I will tell you who you are. So let's move into that time of reflection. Thanks for listening today. We would like to invite you back to our services starting at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. For more great content from Newport Church, check out newportchurch.net or visit our YouTube channel. To get the right one, search for Newport Church in Elm, PA.